the dust blows forward and the dust blows back. Down in Dachau Blues. All the pots you When the goldfish, the harmonious dance, wretched birds burst. The way you were dancing, I knew you'd never come back. Hello, and welcome you to Track by Track presents Trout Mask Replica. My name is Joel Buck, guest hosting for Darren Husted. As we go track by track through Captain Beefheart and his Magic Band's legendary 1969 double album, Trout Mask Replica. Today we are discussing Ella Guru, which is track four on side one of Trout Mask Replica. It was recorded at Whitney Studios in Glendale, California, March of 1969. Personnel is Bill Harkelrod, a.k.a. Zoothorn Rollo on guitar, Jeff Cotton, a.k.a. Antenna Jimmy Siemens on guitar and briefly on vocals. Uh, Mark Boston, a.k.a. Rocket Morton on bass. John French, a.k.a. Drumbo on drums. Don Van Vliet, a.k.a. Captain Beefheart on vocals. And Victor Hayden, a.k.a. The Mascara Snake, briefly appearing on vocals. Uh, Length of the track is 2 minutes and 26 seconds. It was produced by Frank Zappa. Uh, My guest today is a, a musician, a composer, an instructor of music, and most saliently for this podcast, a member since I believe 2009. It says on your on your CV of the Magic Band, playing the music of Captain Beefheart with John French and others. Uh, Eric Clerks, welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Joel. It's great to be here. That's right. I've been a member of the Magic Band since 2009. And I'm pronouncing your last name correctly. Yes, it's Clerks. Yep, like the movie, but with a K. Got it. <laughs> so, um, I guess first question is, how did you get uh, how'd you get um, mixed up with the Magic Band guys? <laughs> so, I was doing my master's degree at the California Institute of the Arts uh, from 2007 to 2009, and uh, John French, Drumbo, uh, who we all know is the legendary drummer for the magic band kind of in the classic formation that most of us are aware of. He got in touch with a guitar teacher there named Miroslav Tadic, who uh, is a fantastic session musician. He was working with the grandmothers of invention with Don Preston and Bunk Gardner. And uh, okay. Don was looking for a guitarist for a project that he was doing for his solo record. He referred, uh, Miroslav referred John to a mutual friend of ours, a guy, a really great guitarist in New York named Scott Collins. Scott called me and introduced me to John. John. And long story short, I started working with John as kind of a member of his uh, solo project band. And we did a lot of rehearsals and a few shows. And over time, uh, one of the few gigs that we actually did was playing for the uh, Jimmy Carl Black Memorial Service uh, out in the desert. And there I got to meet Danny Wally and... A little while after that, I got a call from Drumbo asking, hey, would you be interested in being involved in the Magic Band as the other guitarist as Gary Lucas is leaving to do his solo work? And of course, I said Mm -hmm. yes. (laughs) Yeah, you don't turn that down. Absolutely not. (laughs) So you've been uh, working with him since it seems weird to say that 2009 was 11 years ago but right <laughs> you you have you've been you've been working with these guys for a while so it was the original um incarnation that you joined it was uh, Denny Wally was the second guitarist and was it still Mark Boston yeah, on bass Mark, ba- Mark Boston Rockette Morton on bass and at that time uh the the drummer who was playing drums when uh John was up front singing and fronting the band was a really great drummer named Craig Bunch who was also uh playing drums in John's solo project as well that's how he came on board Got it. Yeah. Um, so the uh, 
prior to this, um, was Beefheart like part of your musical background? Was was this music on your radar prior to to connecting with John French? Yeah, it was on my radar more as a listener and a fan rather than as a musician. Um, I, I grew up in the San Francisco Bay Area, and that's where a lot of my musical ideas were kind of formed as a player and as a listener. And I got into Trout Mask and Lick My Decals Off Baby, you know, kind of those seminal records around the same time that I was listening to like John Coltrane and Ornette Coleman, which put me at like maybe 15 or 16 years old. So all that stuff made a lot of sense to me kind of early on, but it was always as a listener as a, and as a fan rather than a guy trying to like cop the licks or whatever. <laughs> sure. Yeah. So you, you must have been pretty, you must be pretty open to, I mean, if you're listening to Coltrane and Ornette Coleman at, I think you said 15 mm-hmm. and, and moving into Trout Mask, you must have been pretty open to new ideas and, and dissonance and unexpected textures in, in music. Um, is that, was that something that came naturally to you? Like, have you always gravitated toward things that, that could go a little out or was that something that, that grew over time? Um, you know, I, I grew up listening to a lot of blues. Like my, my parents, this is, I love this. I love telling this story. If you'll just indulge me for a moment. Uh, my mom and dad, Absolutely. one of their, one of their first dates when they were dating way back when, before I came along was to go see John Lee Hooker at UCLA. So that tells you what kind of music I was growing up with in the house and, you know, that kind of stuff, very, you know, just beautiful, deep blues. And as I got older, I started getting into jazz and, my friends were telling me, oh, you need to listen to some some Coltrane and some Miles Davis. So I went to the library and the first Coltrane record I ever listened to was Ascension. And the first Miles record I wow. ever listened to was uh, Dark Magus live at Carnegie Hall, right? Because I didn't know any better. I didn't know about Kind of Blue. I didn't know about Giant Steps or my favorite things. I just heard this and I go, oh my God, this is the sound of freedom. This is so beautiful. And it just, on a very visceral level, it just felt really, really good. You know, so when I heard Beefheart's music, I was like, oh, my God, it's it's the blues. It's this beautiful, deep, you know, swampy blues, plus all of this amazing kind of technical guitar playing, plus these amazing rhythms, plus this like freedom, you know, over top of it with the horns and the arrangements that are just a little off kilter and just beautiful. So it, it, it felt fantastic. And um, so I think my my early listening habits and my early development as a listener and as a musician kind of primed me for that experience of you know really experiencing Beefheart and and understanding how the music worked in a way that wasn't just breaking it down from a purely technical standpoint but really figuring out like really feeling it you know I I gotta say whichever one of your parents wanted selected going to see John Lee Hooker on a date good call right Uh, that's a that's a hell of a date right Yeah, thanks, Dad. Yeah, that's 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 great having that kind of background yeah. to to uh, to to base yourself in as you as you move up. And man, starting with Ascension for Coltrane, that is really diving in at the deep end. Absolutely, you know, and and learning how to swim. Um, so yeah, the the music of of Trout Mask it does have that you know there's there's this freedom, but then it's this crystallized freedom, like the the wildness of the the discordance and the um, and the unusual structures but obviously uh taken to a point of you know repeatability of this of this music being then very highly structured mm-hmm. after after the initial creation point mm-hmm. um ella grew is i think an interesting uh particularly interesting track because it, it almost it almost hews to a verse chorus structure mm-hmm. like more so than a lot of the other tracks on the album like the when you the there's kind of a first verse 
and then you get to the Eligaru repeat, which is kind of the chorus, and then it kind of goes into like a musical, uh, almost a guitar solo yeah. part yeah. on on the the left channel, which is I think yeah, that's Bill Harkle wrote on the left, I think, mm-hmm. and um, and then back into the chorus. So it's you know verse chorus musical interlude chorus which is is closer to a traditional structure than a lot of the other tracks yeah. on this album absolutely uh, and you said this is this was a live staple at once when you uh joined the magic band that you would you guys would play this one frequently yeah exactly and we we did it instrumentally uh there are some uh instrumental outtakes from trap mask that are available on a lot of versions you know deluxe editions and things like that so it's possible to hear the the studio recording you know sans vocals uh which is mm-hmm. really neat so drumbo would come back and play drums on it and we would usually do um we would ju- usually do eliguru um what did we go into Oh my goodness. It'll come back to me anyway. Um, but we would do it as kind of a medley with a, another instrumental trap mask tune. And it was, uh, it was great because we'd come into those choruses and the audiences would sing along, you know, they'd be at the top of their lungs going, Eliguru, sure. Eliguru. And it was, so, it was such a wonderful experience. Um, and I think, uh, in terms of the resonance, I really agree with you, uh, in terms of the, the clarity of the song form. Uh, and it's a, I, I felt like it was a really nice palate cleanser in between some of the more, kind of densely packed less uh not less structured but less uh ah you know what i mean <laughs> less, mm-hmm. <laughs> the wi- the wilder tracks yeah, yeah the wilder I... tracks where there's a little bit the, the form and the structure are a little bit more varied you know it's not quite as song for me as as eligaru is like you said yeah i i played i recently played um trout mask replica for a friend who had never heard it before mm-hmm. Uh, but who has very um, out taste in music who, and who has uh, joined me on a couple of episodes here. But when we got to Ella grew, he said, Oh, this must be the hit single, ha! which is, is kind of, it, it feels like maybe this track and, and maybe moonlight on Vermont feel a little bit more like there's a little bit more to hang on to in terms of structure than, than something like Pina, which is, mm-hmm. is very out and very difficult to, to grasp onto. Yeah. So when you were um, when you were playing this w- with the Magic Band, did you? I- I'm presuming that you and the other guitarist, Denny Wally, to start with, and then I-, I believe since then Wally has moved on, and there have been other other guitarists filling filling that position. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm presuming that you guys didn't like swap parts; that you would play the same that you would play the same role every night. Did you take a uh, Harkle Road or Cotton's guitar part? Uh, generally, I'd be playing Harkle Road's part. I would I would generally take Bill's stuff, um, and that was a combination. When when I was uh, first joining the band, a lot of that had to do with Gary Lucas originally kind of covering Bill's parts for the most part. Um, so mm-hmm. I would just kind of slot in and play whatever Gary had been playing, and I'd say about ninety percent of the time that was Bill. And moving forward from there, you know, I got so comfortable. Um, I spent so much time absorbing and kind of analyzing Bill's playing style out of necessity, really, for the gig. Um, but sure. it was very easy so that when we would bring in music that was, uh, you know, new to us in performance, at least, uh, something like Ella Guru, it was really natural for me to say, oh, yeah, I'll take Bill's part. And Danny goes, great, man. <laughs> yeah, that worked out. Yeah. So um, as I, I noodle around a little bit on guitar and bass, I'm certainly not ever going to say that I'm I'm a player. But just as a warning to the listener, I got some guitar nerd questions I have. I really want to ask Mr. Clerk. So. If you're not a guitar nerd, you might want to ride that skip button. <laughs> uh, so um, I know that on the recording of Trout Mask Replica, and I believe with the the other incarnations of the Magic Band, he would have them play 
with metal finger picks. Was this something that you had to, was that a, something that you had done before? And was that a style that you adopted in, in the magic band? Yes, it was. And that, um, that was such a huge part of the magic band guitar sound was not only playing guitar with uh, flat pick and metal finger picks, but even uh, Mark Boston, Rockette Morton played bass uh, the same way using a flat pick and metal finger picks. And for those of you who are still listening, who are not guitarists, uh, or who maybe are, um, the the term we use for that is called hybrid picking, where we're using a combination of pick and fingers, uh, adding the metal finger picks, which are commonly seen uh, used by banjo players and you know slide guitar players, pedal steel players. Um, what it does is it balances out the timbre of the notes and allows everything to have a fairly bright and uniform attack, even when you're playing multiple strings at the same time, different ways. It gives a very different sound than just strumming as you would with a flat pick or strumming or picking with fingers. Yeah, metal on metal can sound very, I mean, harsh isn't exactly the right word, but it, it really does seem to accentuate the the upper mids and the treble mm-hmm. in, in a guitar sound. I know um, Steve Albini uh, swears by metal picks. Oh, totally. Yeah, I love Steve. When he, when he... <laughs> yeah. And, and so what kind of... Um, were you sticking with the, it seemed like standard issue for Magic Band guitarists was either a Stratocaster or a Telecaster, it, based on the other the other incarnations of the band I've seen. That was usually their, their go-to. Were you sticking with Fenders or did you have, or did you bring in other instruments, other uh, types? I'd say the, the majority of it was Fender. Uh, the... The tours where we were playing Ella Guru in particular, I was actually playing a Fender Jaguar strung up with a set of 12s because of the short scale. And I loved that guitar because it gave me a lot of the cut and clarity of the the Fender sound, the single coil pickups, that brightness, and that kind of bell sound that's very associated with that Magic Band thing. A lot of the high upper partials just ringing out. Uh, There were a few tours where I also brought uh, uh, Les Paul Jr. with a P90 pickup uh, because of Elliot Ingber, Wing Deal Finger. Um, he played a junior on quite a bit of the live stuff um, and I thought that was a fun thing to kind of tap into as well did you take the uh, did you guys um, play Alice in Blunderland uh, as part of any of the sets, just out of curiosity. Absolutely, that was um, <laughs> that was a feature. That was my big guitar solo every night. That was when I got to be oh, nice. a psychedelic warrior um, <laughs> with <laughs> and kind of channel Elliot's solo. And <clears throat> I was really encouraged by the other guys in the band to branch out a little bit and bring a little bit of myself to it, uh, which was a really wonderful thing and a wonderful opportunity that they allowed me to you know, to kind of be a freak for about two and a half minutes, you know, and get away from the written stuff. <laughs> oh yeah. that That's great. That's one of the few for, for listeners who are not um, familiar with, with Beefheart's later material, Alice in Blonderland is on uh, the spotlight kid mm-hmm. and it features, I, as far as I know, the only extended guitar solo in, in Beefheart's catalog yeah. that it's a, a long kind of a showcase for Ingber's, uh, guitar playing so that's that's very cool that you were given the i'm i'm sure there it wasn't a lot of other opportunities to stretch out and improvise within the structure of the magic band that's pretty highly structured music by and large oh exactly and you know interesting thing um i don't know if you've read john french's book through the eyes of magic but uh mm-hmm. yeah there's a there's a section where he's talking about elliot playing alice in Blunderland and then going out on tour and elliot would generally play his solo from the record note for note um, which was something that, which was something that uh, 
that John in particular, you know, he always wished that Elliot would, would stretch it out a little bit more and, and, mm-hmm. and push a little bit. But Elliot was very into playing that solo because it is a fantastic solo. It's so beautiful. Um, so it was, I think it was a little bit refreshing for, you know, Drumbo and Rockette and Feelers to, to have this kid in the band who was, you know, pushing a little bit and doing something a little bit different than what they were used to hearing. Uh, and did you guys take any of the, um, the more structured, like guitar-based instrumental pieces like uh, Peon or, or Flavor Bud Living or, or anything like that? Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, we did... Uh, we did each of those at one time or another, and generally for each tour, we'd kind of decide on one uh, kind of structured solo piece, whether it was Flavor Bud or Peon or One Red Rose that I mean, and kind of make that a little moment in the show. Um, so it just depended on the year that you happened to see us. That would dictate the, the tune that we played. Um, Evening Bell was another one. That was a great one. Evening Bell sounds fiendishly complicated to play. Oh yeah, they're all yeah, <laughs> and they're they're all they're all almost like classical guitar pieces, really. Um, the level of technicality, the the level of uh, virtuosity required to really play those things cleanly, and with the finger picks and on an electric guitar, you know, all of these things put together, you know, it's 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 an incredible challenge and a wonderful opportunity, I think, f- to develop one's musicianship, um, exploring those pieces. So I, I know that. The experience of the the Magic Band band members who worked with Van Vliet, um, particularly the Trout Mask Band, um, those those were some rough times for those guys. He was not an easy man to work with, and he yeah. made the experience. I, I believe Mark Boston, who who it seems like a very taciturn gentleman, said something along the lines of he made it a lot harder than he needed to, which I I think is ha. is probably as as harsh as he ever gets. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. About about yeah. anyone in in working with these guys, um, d- do you feel that I, I? It seems to me that in in playing this music and in um, touring with it, they must it, it must be an opportunity for them to kind of come to peace and you know a certain amount of pride of this part of their legacy that they they you know as difficult as this time was, they contributed to in. in really essential ways to this music that we're still talking about 50 plus years later that that is utterly unlike anything else exactly and there was we we talked about this which was nice they were really open to discussing their time recording and touring and working with don um and what it was like on the road and what it was like in the studio and for for john and mark in particular being there during the the trap mask period where, you know, it was, it was very intense and there was, uh, there was a fair amount of, you know, emotional, physical and mental abuse that was happening to be completely honest from everything that I've heard and everything that I've read and everything that I understand. Um, and for these guys to be able to go out and perform this music that they spent a lot of time and energy and, exacted a fair, a pretty heavy emotional and financial toll on them uh, because they never really made a lot of money. They never really got much in the way of royalties mm-hmm. from this stuff. You know, these legendary records that are so beloved by the fan base, the people who know about them, um, to be able to bring it out to the people, to the fans, and to celebrate the music, you know, to celebrate the act of performance, to celebrate 
the genius of it, you know, the incredible power that lives in that music, due in no small part to the level of performance and the level of creativity that these musicians brought to the music. I think it was really satisfying for them to be able to go out and do it in a way that felt healthy, a way that felt therapeutic, and a way that felt like a celebration rather than, you know, whatever whatever the other stuff may have happened, you know, in the, in the late sixties and early seventies. I know that, that French, um, would worked in several different incarnations of the magic band with, with Van Vliet that he, that he came back on, on multiple occasions and worked with him, probably his closest musical collaborator in, mm-hmm. in most senses. So I would, I would think for him that, that it would have a particular resonance of, having worked so closely with this man who was so difficult and yet having be now being able to just go out and, and, you know, joyously celebrate what they created together and, you know, for French to perhaps finally get some of the due coming to him for how much he, he contributed to putting this music together. I mean, there's, I've talked with on other episodes of this show, I've, I've said this album does not exist without John French because it's the mm-hmm. amount of work that he put into transcribing the music, showing it to the other members of the band, you know, knitting things together in, in, in a way that, um, you know, Van Vliet would just hand him stuff and say, okay, you know what to do. And so, you know, French <laughs> would be on his own trying to figure out how this stuff, this crazy stuff all goes together. And that mm-hmm. it's, he certainly deserves credit as, as, an arranger, if not co-composer, on on a tremendous amount of of Trout Mask in, in particular. Um, oh yeah, I completely agree with you. And it was um, just to jump in for a second when I was first learning the parts. When I first joined, the, when I was first invited to join the band uh, in the, I guess it was the spring of two thousand nine. Uh, our first concert was in at the end of November in Minehead in the UK okay. at the one of the All Tomorrow's Parties festivals. So we had basically the the fall to for me to learn, you know, a magic band set, mm-hmm. you know, a, a festival set, you know, maybe an hour and a half. And I would go over to John's house um usually once a week, you know, and I'd get I'd prepare as best I could and I'd sit down with him and he had handwritten sheet music handwritten parts for these songs and i can't speak to the the age of them they looked old but i don't know if they were actually from the the period of time when everything was composed Mm -hmm. but um but to see the level of detail and attention that he gave to writing the parts to transcribing the parts to making these individual pieces fit together in a coherent way you know knowing where to cut phrases and when to change things and when to go from section to section it's really it was really incredible um and i couldn't have done what i did in terms of learning and transcribing the music without his help and without his resources i was going to ask actually if he had it so it it was all it's all written out all transcribed he didn't there's there was no like you have to go back and learn this by ear in in preparing this music yeah yeah, all the all of the all of the trap mask stuff and most of the decal stuff and the things where he was kind of acting as kind of co-musical director with Bill or during the trap mask stuff as you know transcriber and archivist and arranger, mm-hmm. um, that stuff is all it's all written out and anything that uh, he didn't have the sheet music for he has such a keen memory you know. I would sit down and play something for him and he'd make a few corrections and I would play it again. You go, that's it, man. That's how Bill played it. You know, it was just, (laughs) 
really and I would just light up I'd be 10 feet tall and made a solid gold man we'd say stuff like that <laughs> that, that is that is truly truly the highest the, the highest praise and and you 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 oh, impersonate yeah. his voice very well, I have to say. He and he and Don. I mean, eleven years on the road with him. Yeah, you, know? <laughs> you pick it up, I imagine. He he and and Van Vliet yeah. have similar timbres to their vo- their voices. I don't know if that's just from coming from the same part of the world, or if it was, uh, you know, the just the influence of being around each other so long. Or, but um, uh, French French has has that same kind of um, baritone growl. That possibly not as deep as Van Vliet's, but but similar similarly toned and and uh, handled the the vocals very admirably. I have to say on the the material that he would sing in in the reconstituted Magic Band. Um, yeah, yeah, and there's such a, uh, I mean, Don had such an, a singular voice, you know, as a vocalist, um, and the way that he was able to use, um, you know, that it's that technique that Howlin' Wolf used. Uh, to such great effect of being able to put this growl, to put this distortion really, really deep down. It almost gives it like a bass undertone underneath the the notes that he's singing, you know, and Don was a master of that. And John as well, you know, being someone who was doing a lot of singing uh, prior to joining the Magic Band, you know, and who was very active as a, a vocalist in his own right, uh, playing with different groups, kind of in that in-between period in the, the 80s and early 90s. Um, really developing his voice and really developing his sound and then letting it kind of co-mingle with the aesthetic and the resources that Don was using to channel kind of the Beefheart voice to use those big air quotes, Mm -hmm. you know, it was really, I thought it was incredible the way that he could transform, uh, you know, all these different vocal timbres. Uh, And I think that the fact that John was able to step up and give such a deep and heartfelt and resonant vocal performance that really got to the spirit, I think, of what Don was bringing to the music vocally. I thought that was really amazing. Yeah, that was the one the one and only time I saw the the uh, the reformed magic band, which which uh, I'm afraid to say was prior to your your involvement. It was the um, the all tomorrow's parties in Long Beach in oh, the Queen, the Queen Mary. Mary. Yeah. Yeah, man. Uh, when Gary Lucas was still still in the band, uh, that that was the one time I got to see them, and I was I was very impressed by um, how how well he handled the handled the vocals as as well as having to you know obviously having someone else on the kit while he was singing because I can't even begin to imagine you'd have to have like two brains to be able to sing that and play <laughs> at the same time. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Um, was there a, a song that? What was your favorite song to play with the Magic Band? And were there any that you dreaded just because they were a bear to to play? Oh, sure. Um, so my my favorite song to play, um, and this is, we did an interview for a, a live DVD uh, at, where was it? We were, it was, it was a live DVD in the UK mm-hmm. at Lincoln, uh, which was not the, not the under the bridge, but a, a, a secondary live live dvd and they asked me the same question and i stand by my answer that i gave in the interview which was ode to alex okay um i love i love the energy in the song i love that i mean it's a very songy song kind of like ella guru Mm -hmm. you know same kind of thing there's a very definite song structure the song form to it um and it's got a real wonderful kind of rock and roll energy and yet it still has these kind of hallmarks of magic band music of beef heart music where you have these uh 
kind of cyclical patterns that come around that are not, even though they sound very, uh, very grounded and very easy to kind of tap your feet to, you know, we're all playing in different time signatures for almost the entire song. Wow. And the way that these things cycle around, even though it's very tonal, it's very bluesy, it's very rock and roll, um, it's still got those those hallmarks in it. And then, of course, you've got the Denny Wally guitar solo, which I think is one of the most amazing slide solos ever recorded. And to sit there on the stage and just play, I would literally sit down on the stage when he was playing his solo. <laughs> I'd drape my feet over the over the lip of the stage, sit down, and just you know, I've been playing rhythm guitar, but I'd be watching Denny fucking Wally the whole time. I'm sorry if I can't. Oh swear, no, it's probably fine. <laughs> It's, it's Danny fucking yep. Wally, you know, and he's just rip, ripping up this solo every single night and just giving it to it. Um, and just the, the feeling of joy on the bandstand, the feeling of joy in the audience, uh, whenever we would play that song was really, really palpable. And so for me as, as a performer, moments like that, I just love, you know, it's, I live for that kind of stuff. And so that's, that's why it's my, my favorite. It was my favorite song to play live with those guys. That is a really, really great tune and as as you say it's you know it's a pretty rip snorting blues rocker um but it does have those uh off kilter uh elements what i've always um that was one one song i think shiny beast was the first yeah shiny beast was the first beef heart album i ever heard and oh. i i connected with that that track right away um and i've always liked that it always throws me that don van fleet was into cars and motorcycles like you know, there, there's so much about him that doesn't seem like he would be like his, you know, his love of nature and his, um, you know, his some of the kind of like hippie peacenik elements of his his personality. Um, but that he was like super into hot rods as as a young man. And that Ode to Alex is, you know, about like dry, putting on into Carson City on a motorcycle. You know, it's about it's exactly. about the, the tradition, the rock and roll topics of, you know riding your motorcycle on the open road. Totally. Yeah. And it's, you know, it's funny because uh, I'd, I'd have these conversations with, uh, with John and with Danny and with Mark uh, and they were all like motorheads back in the day, you know? And I think a lot of that maybe had to do with them growing up in the Antelope Valley. And there was such a car culture and a hot rod culture and a pride in being able to work on your own car mm -hmm. and, you know, subbing out engine parts and doing rebuilds and, you know, just like being, being in that, you know, and I, I think you're absolutely right. I think it's a little bit, it's, it's interesting that, you know, Don was, so into that world on some level at least and i think it was very much a a cultural thing of that time and of that place yeah that that was the counterculture of that time i guess was to be to be involved in your cars and and probably you know it was an opportunity to get away from adults because you're dealing with other people your age and uh, having a shared lingo of of car parts and and you know speaking speaking as someone who has absolutely no idea what th there could be like a bunch of hamsters underneath the hood of my car powering it. And I would have no idea. Like I'm, I'm completely hopeless when it comes to mechanical stuff. So that, but that, that always, I, that was one of the things that genuinely surprised me when I was reading through Mike Barnes's biography was that they were all, they were all coming out of that car culture. Although, as you say it in, in terms of the time that they were coming up and the place they were coming up, it absolutely makes a ton of sense. That's, you know, that was the California youth culture at that time. Exactly. And, you know, the Antelope Valley was a, a pretty remote and isolated place. And so there was a lot of that kind of DIY 
it was DIY before it was DIY. Mm-hmm. And it was just a matter of like, you know, you can't just go down to the, the, the local big box store and pick up what you need. Like you have to figure out a way to fix whatever is broken or to improve whatever you're trying to improve. And, you know, you just go in there and do it. You know, John, John built his home studio from scratch, mostly himself. And you go in there and it's what I call high desert engineering, you know, where everything <laughs> works great. You look at it and you go, how is this thing not falling apart? But it, it, it works and it's beautiful and it sounds amazing. And it's a, it's a wonderful space. And you know, it, it, it is what it is. It's super cool. <laughs> That's an incredibly valuable skill set to have. I mean, yeah, that you couldn't order stuff from Amazon at that time. If it busted, you had to figure out how to fix it. And exactly. I, I'm very, I have an enormous amount of, of envy toward people who are are skilled at that, at that kind of thing. I, I'm, I'm completely hopeless when, when it comes to, to, I'm really good at breaking things. Like I can, I can, ac- <laughs> I can accidentally break stuff better than darn near anybody, but that's not a real great talent to have. Um, so in, I, in terms of the music that you, that you make outside of the magic band, um, has, has, playing so much of Beefheart's material, has it rubbed off on you in any way? Do you feel an influence in the music that, that you write and work on outside of the magic band? Absolutely. Absolutely. I think um, my, the biggest impact it's made on me really, I think is compositionally. Uh, I do a lot of session work. I live in Los Angeles and I do a lot of recording sessions for other artists and for you know, movie soundtracks and video games and kind of all the usual stuff, but, you know, just kind of bill paying. Mm-hmm activities but uh, because of the time that I spent learning really learning and like grokking and really understanding uh, the way that the, the magic band music works in terms of the nuts and bolts of it um, it's it's very intuitive for me now to say hey I've got this rhythm guitar part and it happens to be in cycles of five and you know let's just put this over top of you know whatever the track happens to be and let's let's see if the producer likes it let's see if the artist likes it you know things like that um and this idea of taking things that are kind of inherently logical as parts but then making little tweaks to them to make them a little bit off kilter whether it's like a blues lick that i'm changing the timing on a little bit or something where i'm changing a harmony ever so slightly it's really easy for me to tap into that now and sometimes i have to be a little bit careful about you know, letting it loose with people who don't kind of understand that world mm-hmm. as, as well as other people do, you know? <laughs> yeah. I imagine that could be yeah. off putting in a, a studio session environment, depending on the artist that you're, that you're mm-hmm. working with. They may not be prepared to hear that, that level of uh, yeah. something coming from outside, but that's cool that you, yeah. that you are able to um, parlay that into kind of like a stealth beef heart influence into music that might otherwise mm-hmm. not be connected to it in any way. Oh yeah. And you know, in terms of, in terms of my own music, I'm actually, I'm for the, I'm finally, because I spent so much time touring with the magic band and kind of living in the beef heart world. And then concurrently toward you know the last several years, I've been playing with the, the grandmothers of invention, playing a lot of Zappa music and things mm-hmm. like that. Um, I finally have time now, if there's one good thing that's come out of this pandemic situation is that I've had time to sit down and really dig deep and do some work on the solo album that I've been developing for the last like five years of my life. Um, and there's a lot of there's a lot of Beefheart influence. There's a lot, there's a fair amount of Zappa influence too. But it's mostly Beefheart. It comes a lot from the blues, and there's a lot of rhythmic stuff, and a lot of cyclical stuff in terms of the parts that 
just kind of naturally showed up and I listened back to it and I go, oh my God, that's a very like Beefheartian idea, if you can call it that. You know, it's just, it's so much a part of my musical DNA at this point that it just kind of comes out. And that's, you know, I've, I've learned that that's okay. You know, it's an influence and I'm, I'm kind of at peace with that, you know, which is good, I think. (laughs) Well, I I know Tom Waits said something along the lines of once you've heard Beefheart, it's hard to get them out of your clothes. And it, it, man, it does really like it, even as just someone who is, you know, I'm just a, a listener and an enthusiast, it does affect how you hear other music. Like you, you, you're always, once you've really dug deep into Beefheart stuff, you do, it, it changes how you hear things in a very fundamental way. Even if you can't necessarily put the music theory, you know, uh, terminology on it, it's, it's very clear that it's like you've suddenly heard things in three dimensions and everything else kind of sounds two dimensional. Exactly. That's a great way to describe it. Yeah. So on this uh, solo album that you're working on, do you have a a release date set for that? Um, so the I'm looking to do it uh, probably. It's going to be at the end of November, I think. Uh, we're still recording and you know mixing and doing all that kind of stuff right now. So it's it's going to come fast when it's ready. Uh, but the the name of the project is La Sirene, which is something I picked up when I was living in New Orleans, uh, and it's real bluesy. It's real. It's got a strong rock and roll element, but there's also a lot of, uh, there's a lot of avant-garde stuff sprinkled into, which is fun. And are you working with a, a consistent set of, of fellow players on that? Is it a band or is it simply your, uh, uh, your compositions and, and, um, uh, other, other people as they're available? Right, right now it's, um, uh, because again, because of the pandemic situation, um, it's actually been an opportunity for me to work with some musicians who don't live in Los Angeles, mm-hmm. who are very much tuned into the, the, you know, live recording and streaming recording and doing all that kind of stuff. So um, I'm working with a few musicians in Los Angeles, one of whom is Jonathan Sindelman, who's been the keyboard player for the magic okay. band for the last couple of years. Who's great. Um, really fantastic. Andrew Niven, who's a former magic band drummer, the last magic band drummer who's an old friend of mine from my Cal arts days. Um, in fact, we first played together for a recital that he gave doing a concert of the music of King Crimson. That's how we first okay. got together. All right. so, that, tracks. So that kind of tells you where we're at, you know? Yeah, exactly. Um, and then I have some friends in new Orleans who are helping me out. Um, I'd really like to get John French involved if he has time. Um, but I need to wait until I get everything kind of, you know, the, the tracks need to be correct before I start sending them out to sure. people. So it's going to be a, a, about a month probably before all the, all that really happens. Um, and then I'd love to get Danny on it, you know, get some of the magic band guys to play because, you know, they're, they're part of the family, you know, I think it'd be great to have them on board. Um, and in terms of like touring, whenever, whenever we can do that, knock on wood, um, you know, we'll, we'll see who's available and uh, take it on the road to the people. Hopefully. Well, I, I very much look forward to to hearing that that music once you've once you've got it available. And uh, the last thing that I wanted to ask you about doesn't really well, actually, there's two things. Um, uh, they don't really have anything to do with Beefheart, though. The first one was I noticed on your CV that at one time you worked with Charlie Hayden, and I just wondered if you would yes, talk about that a little bit because Hayden is someone else that I have I have an immense amount of admiration for. I would love to talk about Charlie. Um, so Charlie was teaching at the California Institute of the Arts, um, where I was a student. And after my first year, this was the this was the end of uh, this was the end of two thousand eight. 
uh, summer of 2008, I was sitting, I was sitting around, I'd been taking Charlie's classes. We got along great. He was an amazing teacher. And he came up to me, I was sitting around and he says, Hey man, uh, you know, I'm going on tour to Europe, uh, over the summer and I'm looking for somebody to help me with my bass. He goes, you want to come and help? And I said, Charlie, it would be a pleasure. So I started working as Charlie's bass tech, uh, summer of 2008. And as we got to know each other and as I got to know him and his wonderful wife, Ruth, who he wrote Waltz for Ruth for, Ruth Cameron, amazing vocalist in her own right. Um, my role with Charlie's camp expanded to road manager, tour manager, assistant, bass tech, bringer of coffee, you know, whatever. <laughs> and I would sound check for him sometimes too. So, you know, I, I knew his bass really well. I knew his sound really well. He was, I mean, Charlie was one of my heroes. Again, I've been listening to Ornette since I was like 15, you know, so I knew Charlie's oh, yeah. music. I knew his sound and, you know, I got into his music via Ornette and just loved it, you know, just incredible. Um, so I did a lot of touring with him when he was playing with like Quartet West and the Liberation Music Orchestra and then his own, the smaller groups, you know, he'd play with Matheny or he'd play with, uh, you know, whoever, man, he was just, he was playing with all, all kinds of one-offs and stuff. So I'd, I'd get to be there and I'd get to meet these guys and interact and learn every night what it was to operate at the top level, you know, to see artists going in to see Charlie fly into the North Sea Jazz Festival, talk with Brad Meldow and Jorge Rossi for about five minutes, and then go out and play the most beautiful hour of music I've ever heard in my life. Wow. You know, like those are what those, that's what those guys do, mm -hmm. you know, and to see that and to experience it on a very personal level uh, and on a very visceral level and to see the behind the scenes stuff, you know, and the business and the bullshit and the, the stress and, you know, all that, all that stuff that happens and to see how, oh my God, these guys, these guys are enduring a lot of stuff. And yet, as soon as they step on that bandstand, they're open, they're listening, they're present. And it was such an incredible lesson for me as a musician to experience that. And I try to bring that with me everywhere I go, whether it's with the magic band or with other bands or into the studio is to just be present all the time and to be in the moment and to understand that every vibration you put into the world, every note you put into the audience carries some weight with it. If you let it, it carries some, it can carry some love with it. It can carry some beauty, you know, and that's, that's what I learned from Charlie among a lot of other things. So I love you, Charlie. And I miss you, man. <laughs> that's that's beautiful and that sounds like such a, a fantastic apprenticeship almost and yeah um, absolutely best paid internship i ever had no kidding <laughs> and I've, I've occasionally entertained the idea that really gifted jazz improvisers are maybe like a, a slight evolutionary step above the rest of us just in the ability that they have to as you say be so in the moment and yet have this vast skill and technical knowledge on tap to create this stuff on the fly. I'm, I've, I've been lucky enough to see a few really great jazz shows. And if there's anyone listening to this who thinks, oh, I don't particularly like jazz, see it live. Go see a really great jazz band. Well, obviously, you can't see anything live now. But when, when things open up again, go see an actual jazz group perform and improvise around each other. It is one of the most strike 
remarkable musical experiences you will ever have watching a group of gifted musicians creating something on the fly together. Exactly. Uh, so that is uh, pretty much going to wrap it up for Ella Guru. Um, Darren always rates the songs. I say on every episode that I rate each song on this album five out of five because I, I <laughs> refuse. There's nothing you can compare them to. It's it's it would be like you know trying to rate an octopus or something. It's just like it, it's it, you can't do it. It doesn't make any sense. Um, uh, so I'm going to throw the floor open to Mr. Clerks. You're welcome to rate the track if you like, and if you have anything that you would like to plug or talk about or a signal boost in any way shape or form uh the floor is yours thank you so much joel i really appreciate it i you know i i would i agree with you i'd give that track a five out of five or a 10 out of 10 or however you want to rank it um you know it's such a beautiful composition it's so joyous it's so fun and don's poetry his lyrics are incredible um talking about mouth painters and talking about, I mean, it's, it's got the famous, the mascara snake line in the fast and bulbous. It's so iconic, but there's so much beauty and symbolism and vibrancy in those lyrics that it just gets me. And, you know, one of my favorite moments in all of Beefheart music is that Bill Harkle road, Zuthorn Rolo guitar break, that guitar solo, because it's just so perfectly aligned with the energy of the track. It just captures it so well. So yeah, five out of five. Absolutely. Um, as far as the shameless plugs, uh, you can find me on Facebook, Eric Clerks. You can find my band, La Sirene, S-I-R-E-N-E. We have a Facebook page. Also on Instagram, you can find me at Eric Clerks Music. That's all one word. You can also visit my website, which is just ericclerks.com, E-R-I-C-K-L-E-R-K-S. So there's a lot of C's and K's in there. Just be aware. <laughs> My parents did not make it easy. Um, and I'm, you know, I'm really looking forward to releasing this record uh, in November. And I'm really looking forward to getting out there and playing music in front of people again. You know, it's it's going to be a really joyous day when, when we can do that in a safe and sustainable way. And uh, thank you very of much. Of course. Joel. And and I, I hear that so hard. I miss live music so much more than more than anything else going through this this period of time. That's that's the thing that I just I, I'm aching to hear people people play and hopefully we'll get to a point where as you say we can do it safely and and sustainably um for those who want to follow track by track uh on twitter we are at underscore track by track i am at joel a bacher on twitter bacher uh, spelled b-a-k-k-e-r i'm the same on instagram um i don't really tweet very much because twitter is a nightmare hellscape um yeah. but, <laughs> but I, <laughs> but I do post a fair amount on Instagram and it's usually pictures of my cat. So, and for, uh, and I managed to lose my train of thought right on the outro. Darn. I was so close to sticking the landing. <laughs> I was so close to sticking on the landing on this one. And so I, I got in your, I got into your headspace because, uh, I, I have two cats and I was just thinking about how awesome cats are. So I'm sorry that I interrupted your bandwidth with my, my cat. That's okay. <laughs> I think, I think that's an, I think that's a good point to love. You know, Van Vliet was certainly a lover of animals and, and there's a great picture of him, which I may see if I can include with the, the episode data of this with his his gigantic fluffy cat Garland. So, so uh, go go pet your cat and thank you for listening. <laughs>